scandal sheet co-hosts Ellie and Thad are climbing Denali Mountain, formerly known as Mount McKinley, without a professional guide. Denali has the highest peak in North America and is the tallest mountain in the world from base to peak. Now, with the sun setting, and at over 14,000 feet, Ellie and Thad find themselves in the midst of a potentially deadly blizzard, as the 50 miles per hour winds are so loud, they can only communicate with each other via headset radio. This weather is a lousy stroke of bad luck. Whose idea was climbing this stupid mountain anyway? It was yours, old man. Oh yeah, right. But look, when the sun sets in a few minutes, it will eventually get to 30 below zero out here. We'll never make it to Camp 3 in time. We need shelter. Call Bernice. There should be a shelter hut around here somewhere, and we can't be that far from it. Maybe she can find it for us. Great idea. Hello. Bernice, this is... this is Dad. We're... Ellie and I are stuck in a blizzard high up on Denali. Can you help us find shelter for the night? Of course. You idiots. I tried to warn you. Deserve what you get now. The signal is too weak! Ugh. Guess they didn't build cell phone towers on the top of the giant mountain. Damn. My horoscope said this was gonna be a bad week. You know what? I'm getting a little tired of you being the biggest drama queen I've ever met. You always turn every molehill into a mountain. You're always like... Oh, Ellie, I just went bankrupt and lost my house. Oh, Ellie, I was just diagnosed with inoperable stage 5 cancer. Oh, Ellie, I'm halfway up to Nolly and it's 30 below zero and I'm cold. It's like every tiny little thing is a problem with you. Hey, you know what? I have problems too. Netflix just canceled my subscription. How was I supposed to know that my credit card was stolen? Hold on, Ellie. Can you hear that? Yeah, what? What the heck? Sick? I, I think it's... I think it's Beethoven. It sounds like symphony number six. But who could possibly have a loudspeaker at 14,000 feet? It must be that shelter hut I told you about. They may be using music as a beacon to stranded climbers like us. Run, run towards the music. <sighs> Alright, just four walls and a roof, but a hut is good enough for now. I, I agree. Anything better than sleeping out here all night in a tiny bivouac tent. Look, wait, I, I see a light ahead. That, that must be the hut. Ellie and Thad finally reached the door of the shelter hut, removed their microphones, and found desperately on the door. Hello! 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 Hello and welcome. Welcome to our humble chalet on the magnificent Denali Mountain. Ellie, is he wearing a tuxedo? <laughs> Please come in. That will allow me to close the door. Well then, isn't that much better? Must have been a bit of a row out there in that weather. But we couldn't be more pleased that you chosen to join us this evening. We... We thought this was going to be a traditional mountain hut. Completely understandable. 
This was a traditional hut at one time. Aging wood timber walls, dirt floors, rat infested everything. But our founders, who've climbed this mountain and many others in Himalayas, asked themselves, what do climbers really need when they climb? And what do we need? Amenities, of course. Statistically, one or both of you will be dead in the next 48 hours as you attempt the summit 10,000 feet above us. My guess this old fat guy will be first to go. But tonight, it's all about promise, not inevitable grief. So why don't we start you off with some improving cocktails? Martinis, perhaps? Or would you prefer a steaming cup of El Grey? Uh, vodka martini sounds good to me. Twist a lemon, please. Uh, same, but olives for me. Excellent. I'll take that order. In the meantime, please peruse our dinner menu for this evening. Our five-star Michelin chef is quite inventive in her culinary creations. May I recommend the grilled chili and sea bass, drizzled with the truffle-infused goat butter sauce? It is, I must say, a culinary masterpiece worthy of a scoffier. Well, thanks. Well, uh, I'll look the menu over. Very good. Ellie, maybe I'm still a little hypoxic, but weren't we on death's door like only a few minutes ago, in the blizzard outside? Yeah. Mademoiselle, monsieur, your cocktails are served. Thanks, that was fast. Awesome. Ellie, doesn't it bother you that this apparent five-star hotel in the death zone of Denali feels somewhat inauthentic? Inauthentic? Excuse me, sir, sorry to interrupt. The spa treatment package, including the Swiss massage, is available at 9.30 a.m. tomorrow. Would that fit into your schedule? Uh, <clears throat> sure, that, that would be great. You were saying something about being authentic? True crime. Sex. Political conspiracy. Celebrity gossip. Murder. UFOs. Crooked officials. The occult. Assassination. Courtroom drama. Rape. Corporate scams. Scandal sheets. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Scandal Sheet. My name is Thad Helsley, the original Podfather, and I am joined, as always, by my millennial co-host and professional airline pilot, Ellie. Ellie, how are you? I'm good. I am enjoying this springtime weather that we're getting up here in Alaska, and I am also anxious to hear all these stories about the Denali summits that take place over the next few weeks. <laughs> As am I. So uh, when you say springtime weather, what does that mean? 20 below zero? Uh, yeah, maybe like 19. Or am I exaggerating? Zero. No, so we did, we're having, uh, at least here in like South Central, we're having a super late winter breakup. So we, we just, we had a pretty late snow dump over Easter weekend. And then we've just had, we had a lot of snow over the winter as well. So we still have a lot of snow on the ground. It feels like it's taking forever to melt off. Normally it would all be melted off. So actually everybody has like spring fever. So when I say we're enjoying spring, we're just like 
ready. Like we're so ready for summer to be here. That's what we mean by enjoying Mm -hmm. spring. Yeah. Right. Right. And no episode of Scandal Sheet would be complete without our artificial intelligence engine, Bernice. Thank you. I thought we were going to do an episode about that numbingly demented moron, ChatGPT. We'll get there, Bernice. Just be patient. Ellie, our regular listeners know this, but since our audience is happily growing by leaps and bounds, it's worth repeating for the newbies. You and your husband chose to live in the great state of Alaska. You were not born there. Correct. And when there's still a foot of snow on the ground in our yard on May 1st, we have to continually remind ourselves that we did, in fact, choose to live here. (laughs) Reassess the decision. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and I also like to point out that Alaska is America's largest state. I don't think that most people know that. By square miles, Wikipedia says you could fit two Texases into Alaska. And yet... The total population of your state, 720,000, according to Wikipedia, is almost equal to the District of Columbia, otherwise known as Washington, D.C., the capital of the United States, which is only a few miles uh, from where I am sitting. And yet D.C. is only nine square miles in size, same population as your whole gigantic state. So I guess it doesn't feel all that crowded over there. Not really. No, I mean, that's like, what's that, uh, the old Dixie Chick song, like wide open spaces. It kind of feels like that. But I will say we have crowded aspects of Alaska. So like we don't have a lot of roads. So a lot of people live very close to the very few roads that we do have. So Mm. anytime you're on the road system, it feels a little crowded. And Costco is always very, very crowded. Costco? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, but other than that, it's like wide open spaces. Yeah, you have a lot of room out away from your neighbors and stuff like that. So you mentioned spring briefly. Let's jump back into that real quick. It's not April. We're recording this on May 1st, and spring is flourishing across much of the United States. Where I live in Virginia, the flowers have been blooming for weeks. The annual Cherry Blossom Festival just completed And depending on where you live in your state, which is so huge, your climate is described as either Arctic or subarctic. And you live in Anchorage, which is south. So you were talking about snow still on the ground. So the big thaw hasn't hit you yet. We're like in the middle of the big thaw right now. Ah. Yeah, But it really like normally it would have happened like maybe three weeks ago. So it's not like a day when it happens or a weekend or whatever. It's a it's a slow period of time takes us time right yeah i mean because you know the days are getting longer and so you get more solar gain from the sun and then the temperatures are slowly rising and you know so then like the snow all just starts to gradually melt off so if you're just staring at the snow literally melting then it feels like it takes forever but if you like leave for three or four days and then you come back then you're you know you notice you really do notice how much it it changes gotcha so your local climate is relevant to this particular episode. Today, we are investigating the so-called sport of high-altitude mountain climbing. And each spring, it has become a decades-long ritual where many hundreds of people attempt to climb the highest mountains in the world. Now, you've got one very close to you, Denali. 
Never heard of it. We're more focused, never heard of it. And we're going to focus more on the mountains over 8,000 meters or 26,000 feet above sea level that happen to be in the Himalaya or the Karakoram mountain ranges in Asia. Yeah. And, you know, I'm actually kind of curious, where did you get the term sport of high altitude mountain climbing? I guess I've never considered it (laughs) to be a sport. Well, I, I I've got all. There's the the most famous living American mountain climber is a man named Ed Vesters, and he's got several books, and he's the only guy to only American to have climbed all the seven highest peaks without supplemental oxygen. He calls it a sport. Okay, all right. He's about my age. Because yeah, I think he's I've, not climbing anymore. I think of sport as like a competition. So. I guess if you well, I, I, he would say it is because all yeah. the professional guys were trying to do things like that, like climb without supplemental oxygen, or well, how fast can I do it, or can I, you know, do it without any kind of ropes, or you know, all these different things. They just keep putting more stuff on themselves. Yeah. Okay. I guess that makes sense because, like, a sport. Yeah, a sport is going to like add a level of competitiveness to it. You know, like you, you know, mentioned that you are a runner. It's like a lot of people who actually go and race say like 5k or half marathon or something they are maybe more in the sport aspect but a lot of people just run for fun and that would be like an activity so if you just so happen to climb Everest for fun then maybe it's an activity instead of a sport well and we'll talk about how <laughs> practical it is to climb Everest for fun. <laughs> right, right. Okay, so so we're getting a little off track, but I just, I, I really enjoyed okay. that term sports. But anyway, uh, so 50 million years ago, while continental plates were still moving across the planet's surface, looking for a place to call home, what we call India today crashed into Asia, and voila, you get some giant mountains. But this really isn't a geology podcast, right? No, no. We'll put a link to a quick video for the geology nerds if they're interested in tectonic plates. But what we're talking about today is the impulse of thousands of people from around the world to climb these very high mountains each spring, just now. Summit day is about two weeks away. But let's quickly check in with Bernice. There are mountains located around the world, but why does everybody want to climb these particular ones in Asia? Why you humans do the irrational things you do is always a question to me. In the case of mountains exceeding 8,000 meters or 26,000 feet, I presume their height is the reason to climb them. There are 14 of these summits. Mount Everest is the highest at 29,032 feet. Others may be shy of that height by hundreds of feet but are more technically challenging to climb. All 14, 8,000er mountains are located in Indian remote areas of Nepal, Tibet, a country under military occupation by China, and Pakistan. There are no towns or cities in their immediate vicinity. Thus, they can only be reached by hiking or helicopter. But recently, the Chinese built a two-lane paved road on their side of Everest. Thanks, Bernice. Ellie, isn't it true that people in Nepal, Tibet, and Pakistan have been living at the base of these numerous mountains for thousands and thousands of years, and yet apparently it never occurred to them to attempt to climb these giant hills. Yeah, like, that's right. So in many cases, (laughs) 
<laughs> in many cases, you know, like these ancient people believed that their gods lived on those mountains. And so climbing them would be ah. sacrilege. And it's not so hard right. to believe when you consider that um, other cultures believe this as well. You know, the ancient Greeks believed that their gods lived on top of Mount Olympus. And the Hebrews believed that their god Yahweh lived on Mount Sinai. And, you know, that's like where Moses received the Ten Commandments. And I think uh, spirituality aside, haven't they just had better things to do, like for the last centuries until Europeans started wanting to climb them? You know, like they're literally just trying to stay alive. Right. No, that's 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 a very good point. I mean, it would be like, OK, I've got all these sheep to tend to and yaks and whatever. Why would I want to do that? And like you say, you know, maybe there's a God up there or something. But then whether we want to call this a sport or an activity or an insane psychotic obsession, how did climbing these kinds of mountains get started? So it was in the late 18th century in Europe when all the Europeans started having an abundance of free time, in my opinion, and just started to climb their own mountains <laughs> in the Alps. Rich and, people. Yeah, rich people with nothing better to do. They're like, I've got to fill my time somehow. You know, it's kind of this peak enlightenment test of individual virility. Like they're just, you know, trying to challenge themselves. Mm. And yeah. So did I say that word right? It, virali virality? What do you virility? Mean? Virility. Virility. That, yeah. that I think you got it right the first okay. time, didn't you? Yeah, I think. Well, I, I wasn't sure. Yeah. I never said it before. But yeah, I think it's. <laughs> really? Yeah. Because you and your husband define virility. So I'm not sure why you don't use that as an adjective that you have like over your over your door or something. Uh, well, <laughs> right, I'll figure it out later. So, yeah, I think, you know, that that's just why they started climbing mountains. And, you know, they climbed all the highest ones in in Europe. And then they just started booking those cheap flights on Emirates out to the Asian cities and jet blue to Nepal. You mean yeah, spirit airlines, if you're on the budget <laughs> and uh, animal cookies. Yeah. And so, you know, they, they, you know, once they had the opportunity to travel and go explore a little bit, you know, that's what they did. Well, okay. And you know, it sort of seems similar, you know, as a kind of a student of history, like my dad, you know, colonialism was like this gigantic thing that reached its peak, you know, in the 19th century. And like you're saying, people bored, rich people like, well, gee, what do we do? We're kind of tired of hunting foxes or whatever the fuck it is we did. And they said, well, let's just because there were no more foxes to hunt. So. Yeah, because we killed them all. And it's like, well, hey, let's climb those mountains. But after they did, then it's like, well, now what do we do? Yeah. What's next? Yeah. Well, and when you think about it, I mean, I, you know, I joke about like, it's just a bunch of, you know, rich people with nothing better to do. Like in, in all reality, when you look at like the top of a mountain, you know, a lot of times they're is very little vegetation. There are no animals that live up there. There's, you know, it's very windblown. They have their own weather. It's very dangerous. Like humans have no reason to go there, really. You know, it, they don't. <laughs> when, when you're just looking at the, the the human life requirements, right? Of like sleep, you know, eat and breathe. Oxygen, oxygen. oxygen. You know, have a place yeah. to like take a shit. You know, there's no like there. All of those things are extremely, 
complicated at the top of a mountain. And so for centuries, like, of course, it makes sense that nobody wanted to go up there. But now it's like a multi-million dollar industry and a lot of people do it. And uh, I think it's, it's cool now that we have the opportunity, if you want to, to go do it. So like the Wright brothers had their first machine powered flight in 1903 in Kitty Hawk. And the North Pole was reached in 1909. The South Pole was reached in 1911. And people were still many, many decades away from space travel. So these Himalayan mountains seem to be just the last frontier on the planet. And, you know, at that point, there really was not much left on Earth to conquer. Right. Nothing left to conquer. But, you know... (laughs) You know, I would say not having climbed anything over 8,000 yeah. feet, the, you know, the highest peak in the Alps is Mount Blanc, which is at 15,000 feet, which you, you can climb without supplemental oxygen. But when you switch from the Alps to the Himalayan mountains, where everything is over 26,000 feet, and you and I are both runners, you're much more successful than me, but that's like going from your annual church 5K run to the Boston Marathon, right? That's a big upgrade. It is a huge upgrade. Yeah. And you have to be willing right. to sacrifice a lot to have that title, you know, whether it's like Boston Marathon finisher or Everest climber. And, you know, so it was, it's a right. giant upgrade. It's a massive learning experience for the early climbers, you know, back in the 1880s. If you thought you were Superman because you summited the, you know, Iger North Face then you had another thing coming when you attempted a repeat performance in the Himalayas. And while first attempts began in the 1880s by Europeans, no one actually succeeded in climbing them until Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay finally reached the top of Everest in May of 1953. So, I mean, yeah, over almost 75 years of people trying and and failing. Wow. So it took that long to figure out how to climb just one rock. <laughs> well, so sounds a little judgmental. I mean, can, can you even climb a full flight of stairs at this point? <laughs> well, um, sort with, of no, with a safety rope, with, with a life <laughs> alert button. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I've got, I don't know, you know, our, our, our listeners can't see it. Yeah, I've got my, uh, I've fallen and I can't get up, you know, button. But seriously, climbing the Eiger or Mount Blanc is, is still not a walk in a park for me. Maybe it would be for you. I mean, even today, I mean, people still consider that a challenge. But, you know, a lot of people, adventurous people, were still not climbing the Himalayan mountains. So why is that? Yeah, I mean, so there are two things that held the guys and gals and all the people. Crazy uh, people. Yeah, to, to the top of the slopes. One is they didn't realize the amount of air that we need to breathe at those elevations is only, we need to breathe the same amount of air, but you, the amount of air at those elevations is much less than what you have at sea level. So really above 26,000 feet, you only have about 30% of the air that we have at sea level. Okay. So 30% of air is a bad thing. Yeah. Yeah. So like you need oxygen in order to 
transport blood across your body. And I'm actually not like a scientist. I just, mm-hmm. I think that's how it goes. That's like why your heart rate gets really low um, is because like there's not enough oxygen to bind to the red blood cells and then like carry throughout your body. So well, you sound like a scientist to me. No, I just, and like pulling that out from some Google search like seven years ago, that's like been in the back of my brain. But yeah, I mean, so basically you want the higher amounts of oxygen for sure. But that doesn't exist. But you ran, you ran Boston, right? Yeah. You're a Boston finisher. Okay. And and you don't have to tell us your pace or anything, but that's 26.2 miles. And it's one of the more difficult, well, it's the oldest marathon in the United States, but it's certainly one of the more difficult ones. Like the, like everybody likes to do the Vegas marathon because it's totally flat, which Boston is not. Right. But at least it's approximately at sea level. Correct. Right? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Is it kicking the ass, or did you just just like did you go like blow past the Ethiopians and you and know knock that, it out or? you got that right? I did. I blew right past the Ethiopians, <laughs> <laughs> and that's that's why nobody saw me. And that's I I ran so fast <laughs> that they didn't even so have fast the chance. Like they didn't even you have, were like the flash. They didn't okay. have the medals ready at the end by the time I got there. <laughs> And they were still minting them. <laughs> but no, I, you know, it's, um, I, I've run the Boston Marathon twice and, and yeah, it is, you know, like a, oh, a fun race to, to run and everybody feels like a celebrity, but in general, yeah, I, I also did run a really high altitude marathon one time, one time in Montana. And one of the most noticeable things about that was you, it took me so much longer to recover afterwards. So the race itself was above, hmm. I think it was like at eight or 9,000 feet on like a gravel wow. road. Yeah, it was on a gravel road. The running 26.2 at 8,000 feet. Yeah, it was, it was beautiful. Holy it, moly. It was beautiful. It was such a beautiful course. And it was my, one of my slowest I'll bet. times. But yeah, it you know it was really fun, and but it took me. What's so your slowest much. marathon time? Seven minutes? <sighs> no, <laughs> I think my slowest is somewhere <laughs> in like the four and a half because I ran with like a torn tendon on my in my foot, which do not recommend oh, really? doing that. Yeah, it's, it kind of sucks. You're saying four and a half hours? Yeah, or four and a half minutes? Four and a half hours. Okay. Yeah, but anyways, uh, what I was gonna say is actually, so when you're when you're at that high of elevation too, it takes your body much longer to recover. Um, like it takes your muscles mm. much longer to recover because, you know, they just don't like have that oxygen supply. So, I mean, I, I was like unable to walk downstairs for probably four days after that, just because like my wow. my quads didn't have like the oxygen necessary <laughs> to like aid in that recovery. We were talking about, okay, why didn't people right away jump from the Alps to the Himalayas and the Karakoran? And you said, okay, well, there's no air. A. Number two, what is the second thing? So the second thing is temperature. So above 26,000 feet, it's really, 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 really cold, even in the peak climbing season of April and May. And so 30 degrees below zero is not uncommon on the peaks of like Everest or K2. And even on a sunny day with perfect weather, you're looking at about those temperatures. And Mm. so the famous you know, the famous Everest climber, George Mallory, who, when asked by a member of the British media, you know, they asked him why climb the highest mountains. And he said, because it, it is there. And the day that Mallory disappeared on Everest, trying to reach the summit, he was dressed in a tweed jacket. Yeah, and, man. Um, 
Isn't that cool? You know, that's... <laughs> I, it is quite I literally don't cool. know if I'd do um, that. It's all about the fashion statement. <laughs> no, there's um, actually... I, mean, I don't know if we'll put this in. There's actually a movie where they tried to recreate his climb, and they wore exactly what he wore. All the equipment was exactly the same. And really? yeah, yeah, it was, it was, it's an IMAX movie. It played, I forget what the name is. I could say the thing they it would played at the Smithsonian for years and years. Uh, it's a movie from yeah. the mid 2000 teens, something like that. Uh, because they found, they finally found his corpse and we can cut this out, right. but, but his corpse it had never been found. And then they finally found it. And uh, okay. also, it's really cool cues. Anyways, go ahead, please. Sorry to interrupt. Um, oh, no, you're, I didn't know that. I'll have to look into that. Dressed in a tweed uh, jacket. That, yes, that, absolutely. Yeah, dre- dressed in a tweed jacket. And so that's why above 26,000 feet called the death zone and a percentage of very athletically fit people can withstand that altitude for about 24 hours but then they need to get down pretty fast or they're going to start facing pretty serious health problems so you know the difference between mallory in a tweed jacket and some gloves you know that's so different than like what i'm used to seeing like the discovery channel everest mountain climbing series where all these guys are essentially in spacesuits you know, maybe multi-colored, but they're actually, you know, they're just extremely high tech. They've got oxygen. They literally could be walking on the moon. Yeah. Yeah. It's probably, I was going to say it's easier to walk on the moon than it is to go summit Everest. <laughs> that's, not, that's a lie. Well, you need a few billion <laughs> like, dollars to get there. I, it's, yeah, it's even more expensive no, than going to the Mahal. Yeah. As I said it, I was fact checking it in my mind and I was like, no, no part of that is going to be easier. But yeah, I mean, that's, you know, they're, they, they, they do look like they're climbing the moon, you know, and at this point too, you have to have the, uh, all important piece of gear, which is the selfie stick to take your picture on the top. When you're checking that system. Yeah, <laughs> right. That's exactly true. But you know, it's, you know, at least uh, going back to George Mallory, and then you mentioned um, um, Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norier and stuff like that. Back then, in the 1920s, the 30s, the 40s, it was a tiny, tiny handful of people on planet Earth who would even consider doing something this stupid, right? <laughs> yeah, it was a very small handful of people. Right. Right. But today, today, which is sort of, I mean, now we're into the core of what we're talking about. What is the scandal? So what? Mountain climb. Why is that a scandal? Because you've got thousands, multiple thousands of people attempting to climb these 14 uh, mountains over 8,000 meters or 26,000 feet. We're recording here today in May. I checked it online. The Nepal Tourism Bureau has sold over 1,000 permits to climb just the south side of Everest. Now, there's a Chinese side as well on the north side. That's, that, that's another side. And then there's 13 other mountains that other people do, don't do Everest. They go to K2. They go to the other ones. But how yeah. is it possible that all of these many, many thousands of people can be doing this? 
Well, I think that's a question that a lot of, you know, conservationists have as well is just this, this concept of the amount of land is not increasing and the amount of the, the world population is increasing. And then within the increase in world population, you have an increasing percentage of that population who wants to do things like climb mountains, right? And it's kind of that same issue with all outdoor activities, right? Whether it's fishing or just hiking or skiing or something, you know, you have just this growing population of people who want to be outside, but the, the resources themselves are not increasing to match that demand. There's no way it possibly can. So... Are we just so starved for adventure that we will, like people will give Elon Musk $250,000 to take them to suborbit for 15 minutes? Yeah. I mean, I think it's that reality that we just have, you know, we have this desire to do more. We want to accomplish something as humans and everything just gets bigger and better and grander uh like every year basically so yeah i think you know space kind of is like the next frontier mountain climbing is just gonna it's just gonna remain that oversaturated market as long as people can afford to do it you know more more we have more rich people now and more athletically rich people now and so yeah they're gonna they're gonna keep trying to climb it so I looked it up. So Adventure Consultants, which in 1996 managed to kill 12 of their 19 clients, including the founder of the company, famous climber Rob Hall. And there's been a several books about it and a big budget movie. But this this group, Adventure Consultants, are still going strong today. And today I looked it up. Uh, charging 73000 to give you a chance at the Everest Summit. Now, you still have to pay an additional whatever it takes to purchase all of your own gear, which is probably in the thousands, uh, the high-tech gear. And you've got to get a plane ticket from wherever you live to Kathmandu, Nepal. Now, I just checked on Expedia a couple of days ago, and they gave me a great deal. I can go to Kathmandu for 1000 round trip. That seems um, suspiciously low. It does, doesn't it? It does. Because it's, yeah, I mean, how many uh, changes do I have to, it's not like a direct flight to Rome from Washington, D.C. But anyways, with the equipment purchases and the tips, you have to tip everybody. Everybody is sort of on the make here. Uh, You're probably kissing close to 90K to do this. Right. Whether or not you make it. Whether or not you get to the summit, you're just there and you try 90K and and, and they say, okay, you got to give us 63 days. 63 days in the life of a CEO? I mean, if Jeff Bezos was going to – can Elon Musk take 63 days off? I don't know. But, you know, it, it, that's the link of the time it apparently takes to uh, acclimatize. But it, that's not a cheap right. vacation, Ellie, right? I mean, you, you – you are you spend like half your life on vacation. That's <laughs> but you fly for free, right? So I don't know. I, I am a professional vacationer. Exactly. But but I mean would I mean, would you rather invest your money in Paris, Rome, Tokyo or or Everest Base Camp? 
I mean, I would not um, <laughs> invest my. I would not like look if I had an extra like ninety grand laying around. I'm not going to use it to go climb Everest. Okay. I'm also probably not going to go use it to go to Paris or Rome because that seems like an absurd amount of money to spend in Paris or Rome. Well, I mean, you but, can go to Paris and Rome for a lot less, right? I, I yes, assume. Yes. For thousands, yeah. not 90,000. <laughs> right, right. Well, I think it, it is just like extremely, I, I, it is astounding just how expensive it is and how much time it takes because you're right. It's not just the cost that, you know, a CEO can say like, hey, I want to go fly in space for 15 minutes and then they're back at the office by lunch ready to wow the board with their next great idea. Like, no, you, you have to take <laughs> over two months off right i mean that's yeah that's a significant amount of time it really is be, i mean if you're you know, a ceo of a of a gazillion dollar company sure but i think part of it you know that's why so many of the climbers probably have to be professional climbers because they have to have these sponsors like that has to be their job you know they have to have a sponsor not only to provide the financial backing but they really they can't have another employment opportunity that allows them to just take two months off in the spring and go climb. So I think that's why so many of them are professional climbers. They're not all professional climbers, but you know, I think that's why a lot of them are. Well, I, it, there's two classes of people. There, there are the professional climbers, like you say, that have sponsors like, I don't know, Eddie Bauer and REI and Mountain Hardware and all these different things who will give them all the money they need and to promote their in I mentioned before Ed Veaster's Rolex is one of his sponsors you know they want their you know they want their top watch at the top of the summit so you know and he's a millionaire with all those sponsors but then you've got all these other guys are this is kind of the core of the episode because it was like you've got these guiding services like Adventure Consultants, which we mentioned earlier. Now there's like so many others. And the the famous Discovery Channel series of a few years ago was a, was a different uh, group. But they can perform wonders because even if you've never completed a 10K in your life <laughs> and you and I run, you can still apparently climb Mount Everest, Annapurna, K2, you name it. Is that what they advertise? Yes, yes. And <laughs> the thing is... Never run a 10K, no problem. Well, no, they don't say it exactly that way. But but they don't... There's no requirements. And like in the, the reality series that Discovery did, uh, whatever it was, five or six years back, you know, they... they it was a legitimate group that is still in operation today. And uh, one of the biggest... And I think they work on the north side, not the south side, but of Everest. But they've got, you know, they put a man on the top with two prosthetic legs. They put blind guys, asthmatics who can't even breathe at sea level, a 78-year-old man. <laughs> and the list goes on and on, you know, and it's just like, oh, my God, can we just drag every fat 40-something CEO up that fucking hill? <laughs> they can apparently get anyone right. up there. Right. Well, and that's where I, yeah, I you know, money talks, right? Like we did that episode, I think on, you know, theme parks and how, yeah. you know, these people were paying, you know, a disabled person to pretend to be part of their family. And then they get to the front of the line 
you know, like, look, there's ways to cheat the system and, you know, be able to have those experiences that you want to have. And I mean, hey, look, the guy with the two prosthetic legs, there's always a silver lining because his toes aren't going to get cold. (laughs) He actually lost his legs trying to climb Everest years before. Well, that seems stupid, uh, right? I lost my legs. I I guess I'm going back. Talk about getting up and getting back on the horse. Wow. (laughs) <laughs> well, it's because everybody then see the thing is that makes for great marketing, right? Because everybody's like, "Wow, great, good for you! You never let anything get you down, right?" You know? And that's exactly you that. know how to mm-hmm. conquer your fears, and it's yep. great marketing. And you know, I mean, the blind person, it's like they don't even know what the view is like from up there. I mean, that kind of sucks <laughs> for them. But okay, you can I, feel the um, wind on your face, Ellie. You can feel the thirty below zero. You can feel the wind. Yeah. I mean, how do we know that they actually let the blind guy summit? I mean, did they just like leave him at the bottom and they were like, no, feel the wind on your face. Yeah, this is it. You're here. And then like leave him down there. Well, Discovery did did a series for like five years and they had all these cameramen and they covered it, you know, and, and, you know, people cameraman died doing the series and they're like, well, let's just keep doing it anyway. Um, Clint Eastwood wow. made a movie in the, I think, the late 1970s called The Iger Sanction. It was kind of a, it was based on a, a best-selling book about, uh, you know, he was an assassin working for some kind of a government agency, and they were supposed to kill a guy. And in order to kill the guy, he had to climb uh, the Iger. Wow. A clip from the motion picture, The Iger Sanction, courtesy Universal Pictures and the Malpaso Company. 1975, here, actor and director, Clint Eastwood, starring as a university art professor, who is also secretly an assassin for a little-known the United States covert agency, negotiates an assignment. We have nothing more to discuss, do we? There is still the sanction on the second man who killed Agent Wormwood. I will give you another 20,000 for this second sanction. Forget it, I'm back in retirement. You are the only man who can do it. Why am I the only one who can perform this sanction? First, do you accept the assignment? Yes, I accept. What we have is this. The target is male. He is an accomplished mountain climber. We learned this from a note we intercepted. Also, a witness said he limped. Well, that's fine. Now all I have to do is kill every mountain climber with a sore foot. Not quite. Our man will be involved in a climb in the Alps this summer. You're getting warm now, Dragon. That narrows it down to three or four thousand men. Fewer than that. We know which mountain he will climb. And? The Eiger. North Face, of course. That is correct. You are familiar with it? You know I am. I tried to climb it twice, it tried to kill me twice. Look, if the target's trying to climb the North Face of the Eiger, chances are my work could be done for me. I cannot trust a chance, Dr. Hemlock. Now, the only climb planned for the Eiger is a goodwill climb with a team from Germany, Austria, France, and the United States. Now, the target is one of the other climbers. The Frenchman, the German, or the Austrian. We are continuing to work to try to identify him. Undoubtedly, we will have his name before it is necessary for you to climb the Eiger. You're 
passing over one small matter, and that is payment. Naturally, considering the rigors of the assignment, we intend to be generous. You will receive $30,000. I'm sure that's more than you expected. More than I expected, but less than I received. Oh? Yeah, I'll receive $100,000, plus expenses, of course. You recognize that this is outrageous? Well, I'm viewing this as retirement pay. This is definitely my last assignment. I imagine this will be the last time that you'll be here. I shall miss you, Hemlock. Good luck, Hemlock, on your latest assignment. The Iger Sanction. In, and he, it was one of the very first movies that he, of course, he's won several uh, Oscars for directing now, but he was still in his 30s then, and it was like one of the earliest movies he directed. And he did all his own, he was in it, and he did all his own stunts. And, but a couple guys died in that movie. Just climbing the, we're not talking Everest, the Iger. Right. Which is, you know, it's challenging. Iger, North Face, blah, blah, blah. That's why there's a whole franchise thing called North Face because Iger, North Face is supposed to be really hard. Okay, it's hard. Yeah. A bunch of camera guys died to make your movie, Clint. (laughs) Right. But he did do his own stuff. Yeah. Because you got to feel, you know, like there's just something about the possibility of death that actually attracts people to a certain hobby, right? Like no one thinks that sitting on your couch watching Netflix is like riveting because there's zero chance of dying, right? But like even, you know, running a marathon or people like in Colorado really love like hiking 14ers or if you're a scuba diver, if you want to swim with sharks or if you're a skydiver, I mean, there's just all these activities that people just love that being on that edge of like, but did you die? You know, like it's, they just love the possibility that they could have died. The vast majority of them don't, but still a lot of them do. And I was just trying to look up how many people in total have climbed Everest. I think it's like over 11,000. Hold on. I had the number right here. Mm. 11,346 summit ascents by 6,098 people. So a lot of people have actually done it twice. And, you know, it's like, that's not an insignificant amount of people, but, you know, it's a pretty small fraction of the world. And I think there's just a lot of, it's a lot of people who want to do it. And in the mountaineering world, like if everybody's special for having climbed Everest, then nobody's special. So then you got to go do something else. You know, you got to go do like K2 or Annapurna or something else that has a higher chance of death, right? Right. Right. You know, now it's this reality that so many people have climbed Everest that it's not really that special anymore. And yeah, I think it's, uh, it's, it's interesting, you know, Pe- people want to have the option of dying or not the option. I'm sorry. People want to have like a small chance of dying. In, well, in right. And then there's people like me that past my prime, as Don Lemon would say. I was going to say, hey, not according to those guide services. <laughs> no, exactly. You can be 78 and you can still hit the summit at K2. You know, now it's more like uh, armchair climber watching all these people doing doing stuff so and and living voyeuristically. But but let's go back to the actual people who are doing it now. And of course, they're attracting these people with uh, big bank accounts who can afford two months and all of these very, very large fees. 
And then they're given all of these, even though they're supposed to be in the middle of the Himalaya, the Karakoram Mountains, they're given all these modern conveniences like espresso machines and 4K TVs and Wi-Fi and Swedish massage and top Bordeaux from France and blah, blah, blah. So, you know, at some point, it sort of feels like a, like when you're looking at, I was reading all these articles, I sent you some, it just feels like a spa weekend at Laguna Beach, California, which I used to live at one point, uh, at least at base camp. But sooner or later, if you are going to go to the summit, there are no espresso machines in the death zone, right? Uh, yeah. You're right. There, <laughs> I mean, the Swedish massage ends at some point, right? That guy is like, right. no, I'm not going to 26,000 feet. I'm God. sorry. I, I don't oh do that. Oh, my God. What a great business idea, though, if you could <laughs> like, a little coffee cabin at the top and just, oh, my God. Starbucks would be all over that, you know? Just build a little coffee cabin, you know? The baristas up there pulling the shots and... She's trying to shield them from the wind and, you know, handing them out. I mean, what that's really the best advertising I think you could have as a company is a permanent establishment of service at the top of Mount Everest. I'm going to I'm going to pitch it. To OK, Howard well, that, that that may be the the way to do it. So early you were talking about how many people climbed Everest. And I wanted Bernice to kind of to also give us that statistic, but also how many people have died, not just Everest, but the other oh. fourteen eight uh, thousanders, as they are called, the eight you know eight thousand twenty six plus mountains, because you know uh, give or take a thousand. Okay, Everest is the tallest, but as you say, like K two is is considered to be much more difficult, Annapurna is considered to be much more difficult. You can actually, some people say, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, Everest is a walk in the park. Yeah, it's a walk in the park when you got fucking ropes that you can clip into and you just walk up there. But anyways, so here's Bernice. Since 1950, 909 deaths have occurred on these slopes, but this is a misleading number. Many thousands of people have journeyed to the base camps of these 14 mountains over decades, but relatively few make it, or get even close, to the summit, for any number of reasons. Most aspiring climbers never make it past camp one of five before they abandon their effort. A more useful metric is the percentage of people who actually summit the mountain but died before getting back down to base camp. The percentage of people who die in this category range from 31.5% on Annapurna, 26.5% on K2, and only 3.9% on Everest. The blended average on all 14 mountains is an 11% death rate. Um, Ellie, those odds... That Bernice just said, I know you said 11,000 people in all time have climbed Everest, but those odds sound worse than trying to win blackjack in Vegas. Why, with all these professional guiding companies, do people still continue to die so frequently? Well, so there are a number of reasons that even the best guiding companies can't control their external circumstances. Okay, what are they? So the first is earthquakes. And at the top of the show, we talked about the continental plates crashing into one another millions of years ago. Uh-huh. And that formed the Himalaya in the first place. And that hasn't entirely gone away. And there's still actually frequent earthquakes in that region. And, you know, 
earthquakes do all kinds of damage, but they cause the biggest one in this region is that they cause avalanches in the mountains. And avalanches can be up to millions of tons of snow and ice just cascading down a mountain. And you'll probably hear it, but you definitely can't outrun it. And if you're in the path of an avalanche, you're especially up there, you're you're probably dead. Mm. And, this, you know, secondly, there are giant tiers of ice that have been there for hundreds of years. And particularly in the spring, when most people climb because it's relatively warm, a balmy minus 30 degrees. Warm. <laughs> Yeah, these tiers can collapse without any warning. And this is actually being exacerbated by global warming. And so mm. then you get another avalanche. So same outcome. Right. The third, obviously, yeah. And the, the third, obviously, is just weather. So there are beautiful, gorgeous spring days that can start out without a single cloud in the sky. But then in the same way, a tornado can hit the Midwest in less than an hour. The same is true in the Himalaya. And, you know, that's probably the main reason why so many people died back in 1966 is just, you know, this uncontrollable weather. Okay, so those are factors people cannot control. But there are other factors that presumably are controllable, right? Yeah. I mean, there, you know, those other things I mentioned are just like complicating factors, but the single largest reason that people die is overcrowding on the mountain. And every guiding company has computers. They all know the best days to attempt the summit based on, you know, historical weather patterns and things like that. But when you have hundreds or thousands of people all trying to go up the same narrow ridge at the same time, you really get a traffic jam. And, you know, that's what you see in the thumbnail of this episode. Right, right. And and when these climbers run out of oxygen, you know, after climbing for like 12 hours to get to the summit, they run out, they, they've used up all their tanks, they're waiting in line. That's when the trouble starts, right? Yeah. So you become hypoxic. And hypoxic is the, you know, the medical term for your brain not getting the oxygen that it needs to survive. Right. Um, and so without oxygen, you're going to lose motor control, maybe fall down. Sometimes you just can't move or, you know, people fall asleep, they freeze to death and no one can carry a full grown adult off the top of a giant mountain and no helicopter can go that high just because of the altitude. Mm -hmm. But even with all the deaths and statistics and well-published disasters, um, you know, that we've referenced and we can put some links in the in the liner notes. The number of permits purchased for this season are the highest in history. They're ignoring the death count. It's sort of like, well, for some reason, this guy likes to always come to this church and shoot everybody. Well, I'm going to that church. <laughs> We yeah. we haven't heard about I mean, any deaths yet. I mean, the summit day is like like the second week of May, but first or second week of May. But we're but when we're looking at the biggest traffic jam in mountain climbing history this year. I mean, Zad, you know this from living in the D.C. area. Some people just love sitting in traffic. <laughs> and you say so. <laughs> I mean, but in in all seriousness, I you know it's like capitalism right like there's money to be made and people aren't gonna st 
stop wanting to make money until there's not a resource there anymore. You know, it's this is a little different than something like snorkeling in the Great Barrier Reef and like sunscreen is killing all the coral. And so you want to limit the amount of people who can scuba dive Mm -hmm. and, you know, see these things because it's different than that. Because even though, you know, you have what is in theory um, a bunch of dead bodies just like piling up at the top of Everest. I mean, you really don't. (laughs) there's nothing like the top of Everest isn't going anywhere and there's nothing else up there. And so as long as people are willing to sit in traffic and pay the money and other people are willing to make money off of them, what else are they really hurting by just going and doing their little crazy traffic jam at 29,000 feet? Um, I guess nothing like, and that's one reason why it's easy to just, you know, why I personally don't have much of an opinion about it. I think they're all crazy. I don't understand the the desire for them to do that. Um, But at the same time, they're not, I guess I don't know enough about like what else they're hurting by doing that. And so I'm like, all right, have fun. If that's what you want to do, go do it. Mm -hmm. And if more people want to do it, if it's going to get worse, if the traffic jams are going to get worse, well, then they know that. So they can choose not to do it or they can choose to do it. Right. It's true. I I don't know what it is. If it's a mass obsession, you know, because here's, you know, full disclosure, I have an entire bookshelf uh, with books about climbing all the highest mountains. I've got, I bought every guy's book that has ever written. I've got, you know, Edmund Hillary's original book from the fifties. I've got the, all the DVD documentaries. Now I'm really old today as, as you know, but you know, my knees and back are shot from, um, many decades of running. Uh, but to tell you the truth, I was 10 years younger and my joints still worked and I had $90,000 sitting around, which I don't. But if I did, <laughs> I would try to climb one of these mountains. I really would. Because, and I can't tell you why that seems to make sense to me. It it actually means, it seems objectively stupid. I mean, you're young, you're in your 20s, you and your husband are in your 20s. If if someone like just Elon Musk said, "Hey, Ellie, here's a check for half a million bucks. Go and climb a mountain. Just gift to you randomly. You won the lottery. Would you do it? No. Okay. Like I because you're no. smart. I, because you you have intelligence. No. You have an IQ above a hundred. No, it's not. <laughs> because, it's because this is going to sound really conceited when I say that. Okay. It's because I am lazy. I'm lazy. Okay, oh, like come I on! You run Boston enough. twice. You told us on this podcast you can't be lazy and okay. run Boston twice. Okay, but I'm not interested in going up and sharing an experience like that with like thousands of other people who think that they're special because they're doing it. Does that make sense? Like we're 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 all living in the 21st century. There are no more corners of the earth to explore. There are no more first, there may be very few handfuls of first ascents for like mountain climbing things around the world. Like they're just, we don't really get to be the firsts of things. As, well, that's why we're looking at Mars, days. right? It's like, okay, we right. conquered the moon. Let's look at Mars. Let's look at Jupiter, whatever it is. And, and now I guess. Like I don't, I don't need to be the first of anything. I don't need to be sitting up there being like, I'm the first woman named Ellie to climb the top of Mount Everest or, you know, like I don't, 
I don't need to do that. And I, it's going to take way too much time. You got to learn a lot of stuff too, man. You got to have like a lot of ice climbing experience and mm-hmm. mountain climbing experience. Mm-hmm. And I just, ah, it's just not fun. No. Plus I might die. And then you have to find another co-host. Yeah. Well, I'm not asking you to do it. I'm not saying you should. That would be catastrophic for me. I mean, and even if you had like frostbite and, you know, you had no hands and you weren't able to adjust your microphone, that would be very inconvenient for me. But that would. Yeah. Yeah. So that's my answer of no. But I think, you know, hey, the more people who want to do it, go for it. That's fine. So, um, Cool. Um, yeah, I, I, it's me. So I, I, I don't really have anything else to say <laughs> if that's kind of the, the end of what we were talking about with uh, whether we would do it, whether we would uh, summit it. Um, I, I was actually looking, so I was a little distracted in the middle there. Okay. Because I was looking for a statistic and I'll try to find it for you. Maybe Bernice can throw it in there. Yeah. So with the amount of people who have summited, I think Mount Everest, I think there are fewer people ever to have finished the Iditarod than there are who have like climbed Mount Everest or even I think Denali. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, we didn't we didn't really mention uh, we say it in the open. Denali actually is the world's tallest mountain from base to top. Now it doesn't rise into the atmosphere as high as Everest, but when you go to Everest Base Camp, you start at seventeen thousand. You know, with Denali, you're starting right. in the single digit low one thousands. So it is the single tallest ascent from beginning to end on planet earth doesn't get the press that, um, and it's been very deadly. There's, you know, they've got a body count there too, man. Yeah. And I climbed once with a guy who had done Denali himself, but it was during the Carter administration. (laughs) It was a long time ago. So (laughs) (laughs) that was, that was way back when it was uh, McKinley. Probably. Probably. Different name, different mountain. Yeah, I guess so. Different stuff. It was easier then. <laughs> when you're when you're named after a fat white guy. We hope you'll follow or subscribe to Scandal Sheet on your favorite pod platform. And share it with all your friends. We'd also love it if you'd leave us a shameless, over-the-top rave review on Apple Podcasts especially. That helps us build audience. Also... We want to hear from you. You can reach us online at scandalsheetpod.com, Facebook, or Twitter, or just send us an email to contact at scandalsheetpod.com. See you next time on Scandal Sheet. Copyright 2023. Thad Helsley Media LLC. All rights reserved.